friends. I'm Kaylin. And I'm Logan. And this is Bones, a true crime podcast. The case we have for you this week is back in the show me state. This is probably one of Missouri's most well-known cases. The story I'm going to tell you about today is the one of Tammy Zawicki. If you want to see pictures related to this week's case, you can follow us on Instagram at Bones, a true crime pod, or find us on Facebook on the page Bones, a true crime podcast. If you have questions or case suggestions, you can email us at bones, a true crime podcast at gmail.com. Subscribing to our podcast and leaving positive reviews are one of the best ways you can help support us. We appreciate you all so much. Now let's dive in. Our podcast is about true crime, so every episode has difficult things to talk about, but last week was just very heavy. This week will be a little bit easier just because Tammy had a great life. We don't have to talk about tragedy the entire time. Tammy was an incredibly ambitious person. She was smart, popular, and her family adored her. She had a good heart. When I researched Tammy's case, I couldn't help but imagine the people that we went to school with. She just seemed incredibly normal in the best kind of way. Tammy Zawicki was just 21 years old the summer of 1992. She was starting her senior year at Grinnell College, where she played soccer and studied Spanish, with the dream of becoming a photographer one day. At just 5 feet 2 inches tall, Tammy had sunk his skin, blonde hair, green eyes, and a lean athletic body. Her perfectly straight white teeth were showing in nearly every picture released over the years. Not only did Tammy look like she could be in a 90s magazine, her mother described her as the whole package, an all-American girly girl. I think I loved seeing pictures of her so much because of the 90s clothing that's back in style, and I'm obsessed with it. Tammy's friends described her as always smiling, a loyal friend, and a great listener. Her friends say that she made everyone feel special. Tammy excelled at everything she did, whether it was academics, sports, or just being a friend. To know her was to love her. Unfortunately for those who knew and loved Tammy, she would forever be 21. Tammy Zawicki was born March 13, 1971, to her parents, Joanne and Henry Zawicki, in Pleasant Hill, Pennsylvania. Tammy had two older brothers, Todd and Dean, and one younger brother, Darren. Tammy was the only girl out of four children. Her father, Henry, was better known by the name Hank. Hank was a Navy veteran and a civil engineer for Berbectal Corporations and Flower Daniel Associates. Her mother, Joanne, worked as a secretary. They both seemed to have great careers, but their children were their greatest achievements in life. The Zawicki family was extremely close-knit. Joanne described Tammy as an all-American girl, but they were really an all-American family. The Zawicki family could have been on the Hallmark Channel. Hank and Joanne raised their babies in Greenville, South Carolina. Growing up with three competitive brothers who were active in sports, Tammy fit right in. She was motivated and excelled in everything she did. When she found out her high school didn't have a girls' soccer team, she helped found one and then went on to become the captain of the team. It wasn't handed to her, though. She earned it. While the Zawicki family considered Greenville, South Carolina home, they had to relocate after Tammy's high school graduation to Marlton, New Jersey for Hank's job as an engineer. 
Tammy would begin college after the summer, traveling all the way to Iowa so that she could continue her soccer journey and further her education. Despite going to college so far away from the rest of her family, it did not affect how tight-knit they were. Tammy still spent all of her breaks with her family in New Jersey, making the long drive to spend every minute she could with them. She also frequently called to check in and give updates to her parents. I know this doesn't sound like as big of a deal in a time that our parents are always just a text away, but it definitely wasn't as easy as it is now. I can't imagine going a day without talking to my mom, and I'm 25. We usually text all day, every day. Well, it wasn't possible to stay in touch 24-7 in 1992 like it is now in 2023, they still did their best. On Friday, August 21st in 1992, Tammy Zawicki would leave her parents' New Jersey home for the last time. We weren't even born yet, so it's weird to imagine this time. We're 90s babies, but just barely. I don't think I've mentioned on the pod, but we actually were both born on February 19th in 1998, so there's your fun fact about us for today. Woo, go us. I feel like we should eventually, sorry, I'm interrupting, but no, I feel it. like we should eventually do like a get to know us like mini episode. I think that would be really fun. And we could say yeah. like, you know how they do like little uh, questions on social media, like, what do you want to know? We could yeah. like comment things. That could be a thing. That'll be fun. Okay. We'll include that. Maybe people will do it. Everyone, give us your ideas. What do you want to know about us? Or maybe they don't want to know anything about us. That could be it too. Maybe they already know us. <laughs> I think they do all already know us because everyone oh. that everyone that hangs out with us and supports us on our pod are like our family and friends. But that's well, okay. Well, maybe there's someone out there that has questions about us. We'll find out. We'll ask. Okay. Um. Joanne and Tammy's cat watched as Tammy and her brother Darren pulled out to take the long trip back to college after summer break. I'll explain this a little more later, but her brother didn't go to the same college as her. Darren was in between the family home and Tammy's college. Tammy's mother Joanne remembers feeling a little sad and just not ready for them to go back already, but her kids were excited to start a new semester with their friends. I can understand this. I'm so used to my house being crazy and chaotic all the time. It's weird to think of my kids being grown and going off to do their own thing. I'm sure you're excited for them, but you just miss having your little besties home with you all the time. Joanne wasn't incredibly somber. I mean, she expected they would both pull back into their driveway on the next school break. She just had no idea what the next few weeks would entail. Apparently, the two siblings began having car trouble not long after leaving their New Jersey home. Tammy's car was overheating, so they would have to stop occasionally and let the car cool down. At one point, Tammy's brother Darren had to put water in the engine where the coolant goes. I'm no mechanic, and I'll probably be called out for this because I don't know what I'm talking about. But I think as long as the weather isn't going to be freezing temperatures, then you can put water instead of coolant. Um, you just have to switch it back before winter. The two siblings had a 12-hour road trip before arriving at Darren's college, and then Tammy would continue her journey on her own back to her school. I think that hers was another five or six hours, but I'll specify that later. Friday night, the Zawicki siblings made it to Pittsburgh, where they had planned to sleep at a friend's house before tackling the drive to their next location. 
Saturday the 22nd, they would wake up and continue their journey to Evanston, Illinois. The Zwicky siblings had an eight-hour drive before they would make it to Northwestern University in Evanston, where Darren went to school. The trip was unproblematic, aside from the occasional overheating. I'm sure that was annoying to deal with in the August sun, but thankfully they arrived safely to Northwestern University. It's important to mention that the kids called home as soon as they arrived at Northwestern University so that their parents wouldn't worry. The two youngest Zwicky children would let their parents know they had arrived safely and gave them an updated travel plan. They made sure everyone was in the loop. Tammy slept over with a friend that Saturday night to get some rest after their long drive and before continuing the last leg of the journey. Sunday morning, Tammy met up with Darren and his girlfriend before driving the rest of the way to Grinnell, Iowa, to her university. I want to say that they ate breakfast together, but I can't quite remember for sure. While the two siblings had made the majority of their trip together, Tammy still had another five hours to go. This is so crazy to me because obviously you're more vulnerable when you're alone, but it was such a long trip and Tammy had her brother there for most of it. I'm sure that gave her parents a little peace when they left. I remember my mom was always more likely to let me do something if I was taking one of my brothers. Even as an adult, my husband doesn't like me and the kids going to Springfield or Branson without someone else. My mom even still lectures me on it. Which obviously I listen to enough true crime, so I know that I never trust anyone, but I do feel safer when someone is with me. When I'm by myself, I throw my kids in the car so fast, hop in the front seat, and lock the doors before I'll turn around and buckle them in. I feel like I'm so vulnerable buckling them in by myself. Okay, so I like, I would like to say that I do the same thing, but I guess I'm not as aware as you. <laughs> Um, because I definitely just buckle my kids in and take my sweet time, no matter where we're at. So maybe I need to uh, start being a little better about that, because now you got me a little bit freaked out. Absolutely. You need to be more careful, or I'll be covering you on a podcast episode one day. So let's not do that. So <laughs> fine. <laughs> So Darren reminded Tammy that if she had any more car trouble, she just had to pull over and let the car cool down. The siblings hugged and went their separate ways. That was the last time that Darren would ever hug his sister. In such a morbid situation, I'm sure it's hard to see the light in this, but I would be so grateful to have that final road trip with my sibling before something tragic happened. The entire Zawicki family just seemed so wholesome and loving. I know they appreciated every memory that they had with Tammy. I feel like you take for granted when you live at home with your whole family and just getting to be with them all the time. When I lived at home, I rarely went and gave my brothers hugs or told them that I loved them before leaving. But now we never leave without giving a hug and saying I love you. Tammy was on the tail end of her trip and had told her mother that she wanted to make a couple of stops along the way to photograph some scenery during their Saturday night call. Tammy had plenty of time to make the most of her trip as she was so close to being back to her school. Before really hitting the road, Tammy stopped at Hardy's for lunch. She didn't realize she would have to pull over shortly after because her car was already overheating. She was last seen attempting to fix it between 3 and 4 p.m. Tammy was still incredibly close to her brother, but had no way to contact him or anyone else for that matter. 
Like I had mentioned earlier, she didn't just have a cell phone she could pull out. She just had to figure it out and get back on the road. Sunday afternoon, Tammy's mother, Joanne, was growing increasingly worried because she had not heard from Tammy, who was long overdue her arrival time. Joanne wasn't terribly concerned at first, thinking Tammy just got back to school and lost track of time while visiting with friends. The kids were so excited to go back, I'm sure it's easy to rationalize with yourself. Tammy did tell her she wanted to make some stops along the way, too, but as the hours passed, she became increasingly worried. Joanne knew her daughter would not go to bed without checking in, and it was far too late. I also want to remind everyone that Tammy was 21, so I mean, it wouldn't be a big deal to some people that their 21-year-old didn't check in when they said they would. Thank goodness Joanne knew her daughter better than that. Tammy's parents, Joanne and Hank, decided to contact the college to see if Tammy had checked in. Grinnell had not heard from Tammy either, though. I also want to remind you all that Tammy and her brother called as soon as they arrived at his university. I didn't live on campus for college, so I don't know a lot about it, but I would say you have to check in or something to get your dorm information, I guess. Logan, maybe you can give us a little more insight to that. Yes. So um, you don't necessarily, I guess when I went to college, you didn't necessarily have to check in with anyone, but you did have to scan in and out of the building. So that would be on file. Like they would be able to tell, oh, they made it back. And also I was in a suite with five other girls. So it would be really easy for them to contact, you know, a roommate or even we had like a, like a, I don't know what you call them. I went blank. A hall monitor, I guess. That's not the right word, but they were, I guess, in charge of our floor. Um, They were usually an older college student um, that had been there for a couple of years. So if anything like that were to happen or if there's any issues that would occur, then they would be like the first person to be notified and, um, you know, try to find whoever they're looking for. Okay, so that makes sense. So maybe that was kind of word of mouth is how they found out. So Grinnell College said that they would have her call home once that she checked in. But Tammy's friends began seeing signs hung around the university that basically said, Tammy, call your mom. She's freaking out, which I thought was really funny if it wasn't for these circumstances. I'm sure some kids passed the signs and just thought, yikes, a helicopter mom But Tammy's friends knew this just was not normal, and they began checking with other classmates. Time and time again, the answer stayed the same. Nobody had seen or heard from Tammy. Another red flag was raised when Tammy didn't show up to shoot the team photos for the school athletes. Tammy and Darren actually went back to school earlier than normal that year, specifically for this photo shoot. She was so excited about the opportunity, and she never would have willingly missed it. Photography was Tammy's passion and something she wanted to pursue after school. The way Tammy's family described her, I think she wouldn't be so irresponsible to just ignore a big obligation either. I mean, everyone got ready and was expecting to have their photos taken. We've had to do school and sports photos before, and we just know what a big deal it is for the girls. I'm sure some of those girls wasted a whole can of hairspray getting ready. Something had to have been keeping Tammy from making it to her obligations. Tammy's parents didn't waste any time. They did everything right. 
Monday morning, the Zwickys called the Illinois Police Department to file a missing person report. The Zwicky family was told not to panic. It had barely been 24 hours, and she was probably just running away with some secret boyfriend. I know you're all rolling your eyes at this. In older cases like this, they always claim someone ran away or that it isn't a big deal because of the time frame that they've been gone. Joanne feels like her daughter's case wasn't taken seriously from the beginning because of the silly boyfriend theory. Despite Joanne continuously assuring authorities that her daughter had no interest in a boyfriend right now, they felt like they knew Tammy better than her family did. Joanne did, in fact, know her daughter better than a random police department hundreds of miles away from her, though. Joanne and Tammy had discussed a boyfriend right before she left for college, actually. Joanne feels like they failed Tammy, and I agree. They didn't just fail Tammy, though. They failed everyone that loved her. Tammy was too focused on herself and her goals. She was excited about school and the opportunity that it would bring. Tammy didn't want to worry about a boyfriend or taking time from her passions. Thank goodness the police reluctantly filed a missing persons report, but they weren't really gung-ho about getting started. Even though the police filed the report, they didn't raise any red flags or really make an effort to search for Tammy. They believed she was missing by choice, and they weren't going to waste resources, and they weren't going to exert unnecessary effort. Luckily, when Hank called again the same day, he was able to put the pieces together for them. Tammy's car had been found and towed by the Illinois State Police Department that same day. They were not notified when it was first towed, and there's no telling how long they would have waited if Hank hadn't called. If the police would have been more concerned about Tammy when she was initially reported missing, the trooper would have been able to report when her car was found abandoned. I'm also confused why they didn't contact the owner of the car. What if it was a stolen vehicle? I'm sure the plates were a red flag when they saw that they weren't local. Monday, August 24th, Tammy's Pontiac T-1000 was found on the side of the road on Interstate 80 near mile marker 80 in LaSalle County. The car was locked and appeared to have had mechanical trouble, so the state trooper originally left it, thinking the owner would be back shortly with whatever they needed to repair it. When he came back by later, there had been no changes, so he assumed the car had been abandoned. There was luggage in the back and a Hardy's cup in the cup holder. The state trooper said that there didn't appear to be any signs of foul play. I'm sure she had a lot of luggage, though, since she was going back to school for the semester. Wouldn't that raise a red flag? When the authorities realized that the owner of the vehicle was missing, it was obvious that the trooper was wrong in assuming that no foul play was involved. And so was the detective that suggested that Tammy ran away. Why would Tammy leave all of her belongings in the vehicle if she was running off with a secret boyfriend? The local authorities reached out to the FBI for help pretty quickly, which is one thing they did seem to do right. The police investigated Tammy's car, but there were no signs of blood, no suspicious fingerprints, or signs that a struggle had taken place. Someone even took out the time to lock her car. Her purse, glasses, car keys, and camera were all noted as missing right away, but all of her luggage and even her childhood teddy bear were still in the vehicle. Joanne said that Tammy would not stay a single night without her childhood teddy bear, and she knew something was wrong. Tammy didn't take enough things to be gone for an extended period of time. Darren reported that when he last saw his sister, she was wearing cut-off shorts and a white pocket t-shirt. 
white socks, gray ASIC shoes, and her contacts. She also occasionally wore glasses, but they were not able to locate them. I kind of wonder if these weren't just in her purse. The Zawicki family and friends jumped right into action when they found out about Tammy's car. They set up a command center at one of Tammy's best friend's dining room tables and went to work. This friend actually had tried contacting Tammy to see if they could ride back to school together. They played phone tag and weren't able to make plans. And she was visibly distraught when discussing it in the interviews, over 20 years after her friend had disappeared. Things could have turned out very differently had the girls been together. And this is another time that I'm like, if we just had cell phones, that this probably wouldn't have happened because the girls could have rode together. Tammy's loved ones fully led their own investigation and stayed active in the media from the beginning. They were keeping track of which roads they had or hadn't searched, where they had flyers up, and hundreds of members of the community and college assisted in flyer distribution. Because so many missing cases around this time were written off as runaways, Tammy's friends and family consistently assured the public that she did not leave on her own free will or she would have been in contact with them. Tammy would not put her family and friends through the agony of the unknown. An interview with Tammy's brother right after the abduction brought me to tears. It appeared to be a press conference, and at the end, he addressed Tammy. Tammy's brother said, and Tammy, we're coming for you. His body language said it all, though. He was choked up and barely able to hold back tears as his father pulled him in with his arm around his shoulder. He was determined to find his sister and tried to stay strong, but I'm sure he felt the weight of the world on his shoulders. I have two brothers, and I literally cannot imagine how it would feel not knowing if something happened to them or not. You'd feel like a piece of yourself was missing, and I'm so anxious anyways. I always think of the worst way someone could be hurt or need my help. Can you imagine the intrusive thoughts you would be having then? Yeah, I totally agree. Like that would be the hardest thing. And I know we've talked about this in past episodes, but like not knowing if your family member is safe, if they're still alive, if they're suffering, that's just unimaginable. Like I just seriously can't fathom that. I'm glad that I've never went through that experience. And I really hope that I never do have to go through that experience. But I just feel every episode we do for those family members, like it's so awful to think about and it never goes away, no matter if you get your closure or not, I feel like. Oh, I definitely agree. On September 21st in 1992, Lonnie DeMott thought he was going to have another normal day at work. He was driving on Interstate 44 just outside of Springfield, Missouri. He had tools in the bed of his truck and was on his way to fix a hot tub when it started to rain. He pulled over between Springfield and Joplin to cover his tools from the rain when he smelled what he thought was a decomposing cow. It didn't really take long for him to spot a large bundle laying on the ground where the smell was radiating from. Lonnie knew exactly what he was looking at and called the police. A state trooper came to investigate the scene. Lonnie helped the state trooper cut open the large bundle, and he could clearly see a human femur. I cringed so hard at this. So the trooper just let a civilian help open this bundle, who for all he knew could have just dumped this body there, and then the scene was contaminated with his prints and DNA. The body was wrapped in a white sheet and then a dark red blanket. 
each end of the blanket was secured with silver duct tape. The body appeared to have been dragged from the highway based on the way that the grass was laying. The large bundle would later be identified as Tammy Zawicki through dental records. She was found 28 days after she was reported missing across state lines and roughly 480 miles from where her car was last found. Her family was right. Tammy didn't run away. Tammy was taken against her will. Tammy's lifeless body was on the side of the road like a piece of trash. Her body was left out to decompose in the Midwest summer sun for at least four to five days before it was discovered, so she was severely decayed. The coroner determined that she was stabbed seven times in the chest with a penknife and died slowly from internal bleeding. The stab marks were really odd in a circle-like pattern around her heart. There were marks around her neck where someone attempted to choke her with her necklace but failed. Tammy also had defensive wounds. As I would expect after hearing how Tammy's family described her, she didn't go down without a fight. She was sexually assaulted, but I found conflicting statements on this in several documents that I read. They often reported she may have been sexually assaulted, potentially redressed, etc. But a retired detective on Tammy's case confirmed that they had DNA collected from a rape kit. The FBI declined to comment on it, but I feel like the retired detective is a very reliable source, and I don't think he would put that information out and hurt the investigation if it wasn't true. One thing that was consistently reported was the clothes that Tammy was wearing. When Tammy's brother gave a detailed description of what she was last seen wearing when she left, it was not what she was found in. In fact, the clothes that Darren last saw Tammy wearing were never found, except for potentially the socks and shoestrings. Tammy's body was found wearing blue shorts that were really just cut-off sweats with her soccer patches embroidered on them. She had a blue soccer t-shirt that was also known to be hers. People seem to get really caught up on this detail, but I can't help but wonder if Tammy didn't change into something more comfortable when she stopped for lunch. We know she grabbed lunch at Hardy's before heading out of town, so maybe she threw her other outfit in her purse, and that's why it's never been found. Her purse is another item that has never been recovered, so it would make sense to me. Like I mentioned earlier, I also think that it could be where her glasses are. I would absolutely change into more comfortable clothing before making a five-hour road trip, especially wanting to stop and shoot scenery pictures. There was another odd detail reported that I do think is incredibly important and you'll want to remember. The shorts had a patch missing that appeared to have been cut off. It hadn't just fallen off. The patch isn't the only significant item missing from Tammy's belongings. I already told you about the purse, clothes, and glasses. It's mentioned several times that there were a couple of her prized possessions that were also not located during the search of her car or the highway where her body was abandoned. It's mentioned several times that there were a couple of her prized possessions that also were not located during the search of her car or the highway where her body was abandoned. The patch, Canon 35mm camera, and a green musical wristwatch seemed to have raised the biggest red flags. The watch had a green umbrella and a matching band. It played the tune Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. I remember my Nana wearing watches like this a lot, and I think it would be so cute to buy a vintage watch like this, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was something that someone hung on to. 
These items may have been disposed of elsewhere, but they could have been saved as a souvenir or even gifted to a loved one of the killer who didn't know what they were getting. If any of these items are found, they could identify the killer. It's likely the killer is already or close to the age of dying. The detectives are hoping that one or more of these will be found by a family member going through their stuff. Maybe the killer gifted them to a family member or spouse after the murder. Or maybe they just hung on to them and their family will find them when going through things later in life. From what I've read, it seems like the other items that are missing they think could have just been disposed of, but her camera, patch, and watch have more significance. I think people collect cameras too, so I wonder if there's any way specifically to identify this one that was hers. There were hundreds of tips called in after Tammy's family first reported her missing. She was a pretty young girl parked on the side of the road with a hood up of her car, so she was noticed. The first couple of weeks into the investigation, more than 60 people reported seeing her on the highway before she disappeared. A motel clerk even reported someone who resembled Tammy asking about room rates and said the girl mentioned a trucker dropped her off. Like many of the other tips and leads the investigators would have received over the years, this was a dead end. There have been 12 suspects in the case, but over the years, seven of them seem to have been ruled out. Five suspects seems like a lot to me, but I don't really know. I feel like we've not been doing this long enough for me to say it is or isn't. The lead that stuck out the most to me was a green truck parked towards Tammy's car like it might have been used to jump it. The driver was a white man between 35 and 40 years old and appeared to have been looking under the hood of Tammy's car. He was over six foot tall with dark, bushy hair. One of the ladies who called this tip in said she had a bad gut feeling when she drove by. She knew something was off, so she slowed down and analyzed the situation, which is why she could give a detailed description. It appeared the girl was getting help, so she didn't end up pulling over. The lady who submitted the tip had young kids in the vehicle, and they were on their way to get Happy Meals, and she remembered the time so well because of the appointment that they had. I'm sure it seemed insignificant at the time, but a few days later when she saw a missing flyer with Tammy's image, she knew right away that she needed to report what she had witnessed. The police asked for this man to come forward in case he had any information that might help in Tammy's case, but nobody has came forward. The police also never reached back out after originally reading the tip. They just put an asterisk by her name like they intended to. Another frequent tip that was reported was a semi-truck and trailer apparently pulled off the road right in front of Tammy's car. This semi had a unique design on the trailer and multiple eyewitnesses remembered it. There were two diagonal orange stripes. Tammy's friends and family would, would even check truck stops looking for a trailer that matched the description during their search. They were very hands-on in the investigation, helping the authorities cover more ground. Her family believes the trucking community is the reason her case went nationwide so fast. They handed out flyers at truck stops and told them what was going on and what they were looking for. Truckers were getting a bad name from this event, and they wanted to help identify any potential suspects there may be. After Tammy's case appeared on America's Most Wanted, it triggered thousands of leads. Many people believed convicted serial killer Bruce Mendenhall could be the suspect police have been looking for. He is suspected to have killed anywhere from six to nine people and was arrested in 2007. Bruce Mendenhall was called the truck stop killer, but he killed women who willingly went with him. 
If you look up his picture, you'll know that there's no way Tammy would have willingly gotten a vehicle with him. I actually want to cover this truck stop killer in a future episode. Another promising suspect that was investigated was again, like most of the others, a trucker. Clark Perry Baldwin had been a trucker for 20 years and in 2022, just three years ago, was arrested for the murder of three young women in the 90s. Women that he murdered 30 years ago. He was tied to their murders because of DNA testing. He was also arrested for the rape of a 21-year-old woman who he held at gunpoint in 1991. He was not convicted because the police could not locate the victim and they were forced to drop their charges. What was so significant about him was that he would wrap his victims in plastic wrap and then secure the ends with duct tape. His trucking route also went through where Tammy's car was left on Interstate 80. Ultimately, though, investigators decided his crimes were different and like Mendenhall, he killed women who willingly got in his truck. Tammy's family and investigators agree that she would not have. Baldwin was eventually ruled out. 38-year-old James Mackey was arrested for attempting to rape a woman at a shopping center. He targeted her because she was alone, making her vulnerable in his eyes. While his route was also along I-80 when Tammy disappeared, he too would be ruled out fairly quickly. He had a solid alibi with receipts proving he was over 100 miles away at the time of Tammy's disappearance. The most promising suspect, in my opinion, was Lonnie Beerbrot. Remember the woman who was driving with her small kids when she noticed Tammy? She was actually a local nurse, and one day Lonnie and his wife came into her clinic for an appointment. While this nurse was getting blood from the woman, she showed her this musical wristwatch that her husband recently gifted her. It played the same song, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. The nurse knew without a doubt who Lonnie was now and called the police right away. This time when she called, she spoke with now-retired Detective McCarthy, who played an active role in keeping Tammy's case in the spotlight and remained close to her family even after retiring. Detective McCarthy feels the police department and the FBI were sloppy with this case and that it should have already been solved. I usually take witness identifications with a grain of salt, but not this time. Lonnie was an ex-con, 32 years old in 1992, drove a green truck, and was in the same county as Tammy the day she disappeared. Lonnie had been visiting his brother just minutes away from where Tammy was last seen. Lonnie also lived in Saracoxy, Missouri, which was right next to where Tammy's body would be found. He did agree to give a hair and blood sample, but the amount of DNA from Tammy's body was so small that they couldn't rule one way or another at the time. If that wasn't enough, Lonnie also steam cleaned his truck and sold it shortly after the murder. Another tip that the nurse was able to give the investigators. The new truck owner allowed authorities to check for forensics on the vehicle, but nothing could be found after so much time had passed. While Lonnie was on vacation at the time of Tammy's murder, he was a trucker who drove a Kentworth truck. The red blanket Tammy's body was wrapped in had a Kentworth logo. Are you convinced yet? Because I thought there was no way that he wasn't the killer. Advances in DNA technology actually ruled Lonnie out as a potential suspect years after he was originally suspected, and he lost his battle to cancer in 2002 at the age of 41, so if he did anything, he can't tell us now. Lonnie's wife adamantly denies he had anything to do with the case, and if she knows anything, she is not telling.
Tammy's father, Hank, died in May of 2015 without knowing who killed his baby girl. He was living in Ocala, Florida, in a retirement community with his wife, Joanne, when he passed. They were actively involved in their community and stayed busy keeping up with their three boys and several grandchildren. Following the murder of her only daughter, Joanne quit working as a secretary and became a homemaker. Joanne's life was dedicated to her family before Tammy went missing, and that didn't change after. Joanne has continued to advocate for her daughter year after year, despite the heartache that it brings when she has false hope given every time a new tip or potential suspect is identified. As of 2021, Joanne Zawicki was still hopeful that her daughter's case could be solved. Joanne doesn't seem to be holding on to false hope either. Several law enforcement officials also believe that this case can and will be solved due to DNA advances in familial DNA. The DNA left on Tammy's body when she was found was very fragile and a small amount considering how long it had been left out in the elements. The FBI is still offering a reward of up to $50,000 for information leading to the identification of the man involved. The Zawicki family still advocates on Tammy's behalf. Tammy was a beautiful girl inside and out. She touched so many lives during her short life, and losing her left a hole that will never be filled in the lives of everyone that loved her. Tammy loved James Dean movies and Garfield comic strips. Tammy was intelligent, athletic, and street smart, but she still fell victim to a low-life predator looking for someone that they could overpower. If this doesn't remind you never to trust anyone, then I don't know what will. Let us know which theory you lean towards, and I'd love to hear other opinions. As as always, thanks for listening, and don't forget to follow us on social media. 